Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Be humble, satisfied you are dust. Serve others to the point at which you disappear. Make your life an asceticism of sacrifice. Lift the burdens of others. Be a light in the darkness for them. Raise the dying and heal the sick. Disappear into the void from which you come and go. This is what I have called the Senshin Bushido Code. For me, as somebody per occupation has to continually re-enter into one of the most toxic environments human beings must face, it is important as a kind of psychological support to have a code. I surmise or presume that the need for a code has always operated in this manner for the warrior. There's some relationship, whether it be a matter of direction or a matter of context or a matter of purpose between a code and the overall health of a person who is continually entering and re-entering into toxic environments. I started with this code because I have a feeling we're going to come back to it. This episode, like the last episode, originates from a listener request, a person kind enough to participate in the reflection practices and opportunities made by this podcast. Like all the other episodes, it's a this is kind of a Giwaza for me. I don't prepare notes or outline what I'm going to say. On the one hand I think that's very very much the point of a podcast in contrast to writing an essay or a paper of some kind. To just listen to a conversation. Not, not even really to participate in one. I think if, if you really wanted to participate in a conversation, 
you would join the dojo and enter into a sensei deshi relationship. I think that's what participation means, and I do think that is the most productive and fruitful way of capitalizing upon anything that might spark your interest here or in what I say or in what you've read on our social media outlets or our website. But after that, I do find that the listener can go ahead and take these things as their reflection points, their points of reflection, and simply use them as windows or lenses into their own training. And in that capacity, to hear things and to ponder things, not as truths in themselves, but just as, additional perspectives, maybe even contrary perspectives. That's always something that helps propel us in our self-reflections and advance us in our acquiring of needed insights by which we come to make our training our own training, which is very important for a practice such as Buddha. So in that capacity, as what is being stated is not ever to be taken as truth, it does not have to be presented as truth. It does not require a bibliography or solid argumentation, but merely the sharing of ideas allowing what is said to go wherever it will. Today's talk is huge, though, and at some point it's going to end, and I can already tell and should tell the listener there's no way it's going to be covered By the end of this episode, it's eventually just going to stop for no good reason, where the stopping is merely an arbitrary final point. But again, as it serves only as a reflection, there's nothing wrong with that. So our page on Facebook, under the dojo's name, Sension Center. What I do on there is I'll post various types of ideas and reflections that come to my mind. And they usually come to my mind because of my interactions, either with myself in my own practice or my interactions with my deshi in their own practice and in the practice of my mentoring of them. 
these reflections are collected at the end of the year and they're posted on our website where you can read them in total. So on one of those, a friend of the page commented and shared something quite intimate and quite admirable. Admirable in the sense that in my experience, one of the biggest obstacles to discovering a viable and legitimate practice is that you are ever on guard against just going through the motions. And one of the things that I have seen to be the most common is that a great majority of us just go through the motions. I've seen this in myself where I just start to coast almost like a jellyfish coast in the ocean where I lose the agency of, for example, the shark that swims through the waters. I've seen it in the countless, countless people I've trained with over the decades. I've seen it in my deshi. I've seen it on the job in school. I've seen it in the churches and in the temples. And I have, and not alone in this decision, I have come to see that the way of addressing this common tendency, this inertia towards the status quo being maintained is to point a series of inquiries towards oneself. And that is what this friend did here. And it's admirable because most don't. It's a simple solution, but it's one that most do not follow. Most of us go with the current of the status quo. Most of us coast. But this friend asks of his own practice, am I improving? Am I growing? Am I learning? And you can see in those questions, the unsaid question, or am I just coasting? These questions are the doorway, the small door, the hard door.
the entryway into a legitimate practice. The rare door. And how far your practice goes is going to be a matter of how broadly and how deeply you apply these questions. So after a brief exchange, this friend asked if I could reflect aloud upon how do we measure growth in Aikido? That's what we're going to tackle today. And we're going to go all over the place. Let's just start structurally, <clears throat> excuse me, with growth or with progress. Or even return back to my repeatedly said ideas of what training assumes. So let's start there again. Training in Budo is a transformative process. It's a transformative process where the self is the object of transformation. So we can speak of it as a self-transformation process. And the very structural assumptions of self-transformation is that I or whoever, the practitioner, is going to move from their current state, which we'll note with the variable A, to a non-self or a non-current self state, which we'll note by B. So self-transformation is describing a movement from A to B, or we could have said from A to non-A. There's a secondary assumption here, and it is that the non-A or B is in some way positive to A. So we can say, then let's use the non-A. I think that's more accurate. So self-transformation is a matter of moving from A to non-A where non-A is greater than A. It's important to start here because I think it already notes that a coasting or a maintaining of A or even a delay from A to non-A, or even a process where non-A is greater than A, but only slightly. <clears throat> All of these things are to be considered problematic. So if in our practice we're not seeing a departure from 
who we are and where we are when we walked in, this is a problem. If in our practice we do see some change, but it's slow or slight, this is a problem. And I think if you look at growth or success or achievement or self-transformation, these, these are all manifestations of this equation. I'm going to move from A to non-A where non-A is greater than A. When you look at these things, you can define growth as a matter of four interrelated aspects. And these, div these are divided into two. So it's two sets of two. And let's just stick with the word our friend gave, growth, while we understand it through the equation I listed. So the first two aspects are consistency and capacity. Movement from A to non-A, where non-A is greater than A, you're going to have more movement from A and a greater value for non-A. The more consistent non-A is able to be manifested and also the more capacity one has to manifest non-A and in for Budo this is in particular in regards to stressful situations So let, let's stick with just marksmanship. And let's task ourselves with going from not knowing how to fire a handgun at all to being able to put one round in the hole of the previous round fired. So when I first start, I just can't do it. My rounds go all over the target. I'm not able to repeat it. I'm not consistent in the skill set of marksmanship. But after a while, through training, through the application of basics, under idealized conditions, let's say you're just standing still, you get to decide how fast you want to shoot. So you control the pace, you control the start and stop. You have idealized and isolated the environment in which the consistency is being requested Manifest, manifested. I'm just standing on the firing line. No one's next to me. 
It's just a paper target. It's not shooting back at me, etc. Now I can put one round in the hole of the previous round. And I can start to do it repeatedly. And if you leave me in those idealized conditions, I can keep doing that. So there's consistency. But now we look at capacity. Can you do it on the move? Can you do it under stress? Can you do it with people watching? Can you do it against the timer? Can you do it when people are shooting back at you? And so consistency that is able to remain manifested under stressful or non-idealized environments is going to be considered more growth. Just as consistency to a lack of consistency is considered more growth. Then the second set of ways that we mark growth is depth, depth and dispersion. Within every skill set, there's a whole lot of other micro skill sets, so to speak. And these usually travel vertically or internally. And because they are related to the external skill set, and because they're internal skill sets, they also have a horizontal component to them. So, for example, let's stick with marksmanship and the uh, metric of putting one round in the hole of the previous round. When you are learning this, you learn grip, you learn trigger press, you learn sight alignment, breath control, etc. Stance, etc. All that goes into it externally you realize, for example, that concentration has a lot to do with whether you're able to repeatedly manifest those external skill sets. You know the stance, you know the grip, you know the trigger press, you know how to align the sights, but the mind will wander And this causes you to veer in the simultaneity or in the fulfillment of each of those external skill sets. And the person whose mind can remain centered and engaged, focused, and can do it every time is the person who's going to be consistent. 
And the person who can keep that mind active in that manner under stress is the person who's going to demonstrate capacity. Capacity outside of idealized environments. And the person who has that kind of mind is going to have that mind outside of that performance metric. So let's say, for example, they also practice Iaido. And Iaido has, at some levels of his training, a great need for this kind of mindfulness, this kind of capacity for focus and concentration. And so the person who can consistently and with capacity repeatedly put one round in the hole of another round is going to be able to perform their Iaido forms with that same level of mindfulness. This would be an example of depth and dispersion. The deeper skill is the mindfulness and with it comes a capacity to utilize that skill in other areas of our life. To me, these two set of pairings, consistency and capacity, depth and dispersion, are signs that we can use that we are growing in our practice. But to what end? What are the skill sets in Aikido? I understand that I need consistency in a capacity outside of idealized environments. I understand there should be a depth and a capacity to disperse my skill sets outside of the ones in which they were trained or in which the ones they were asked to perform and make manifest. I understand that I must move from A to non-A and have non-A be greater than A. I get all that, but what is the aim that is particular to Aikido? So if, if I were to hear what was just said, I could stop listening then. You could just take those formulas and apply them to your own art and to your own practice. Plug them in. See if they're working out for you and you are good because here we're only talking about what I understand. Aikido to be and as you've heard from previous podcast 
Your Aikido is your Aikido. It has to be. Especially for those not in a sensei deshi relationship with me. But for me, my personal history, all the things that go into making my personal context for understanding the world, my experience of the world, I look to see what the founder said. It speaks to me. It makes sense to me. And that's important because in that sense, my position might be traditional, but it's not traditionalistic. Meaning I'm not a follower of the founder because he is the founder. And so I do not adopt his position because he is the founder. There is a sense to it and it is adopted by me because of that sense. So much so that should it be the case that the founder later we discover some text where, wherein he wrote down clearly for everyone to read what his view was of this art of ours. And if it was contrary to what I am doing now, then I would not be a follower of the founder. So I see that there's two things that the founder gave to us as the apex aspects of practice. And as was mentioned in prior podcasts, they are based or make use of this principle of concentric truth in that While there are two, there's really only one. And while one may lead to the other, so the other leads to the prior one. There's a kind of non-two-ness to them. They're kind of Russian dolls where the exact same thing is contained in the other one. And these are divine communion, or rather the experience of divine communion. And takamusaiki, or rather 
the enactment of divine communion. My experience has led me to hold that this is actually the dividing line, if there has to be one, which is going to be very difficult to support. Because divine communion is about total union. And dividing lines are not the point. Or the absence of them is the point. But if historically we were trying to note some sort of deviation point where the founder came to see his art as different from that of his teachers, it's these two things. It's not the way in which Kotagash was done. It's not whether Kotagash is present or not. It's not something so mundane and so overly simplified as to relate to techniques. It's also not something as worldly as morality. It is more the aim of one's practice. And the manifestation of that aim. Where we see O Sensei depart from his teacher. You, you might think that well the techniques look the same for at least those who are more informed. I, I, I guarantee you there's still a majority of the Aikido population that does not know how intimate the relationship is in terms of techniques, in terms of tactical architectures between Daito Ryu and Aikido. But if you were informed enough to know that that is a very blurry line and probably one, at least from the perspective of techniques that we could actually do without, you might think that this is a moot point that the aim of the aim that is particular to O Sensei and the manifestation of that aim that is particular to O Sensei, you might think this a moot point in terms of technique. But You'll find when you do that, you're working with a body-mind division that the founder is not working with.
that the aim, especially an aim of this nature, is going to make a difference in manifestation when that aim is acted out. And so he could look at someone's technique and go, this is not Aikido or this is not my art. You're doing the technique, but you don't have the aim and you're not doing the enactment. That shouldn't be so strange to us. I'm sure there are countless Aikido instructors and senior practitioners who are teaching a technique or practicing a technique with a new person who is, let's take Ikkyo. And they're just cranking the fulcrum lever mechanism at the wrist and elbow. There's no center engagement. There's no center capturing of, of uke center. There's no kazushi. And yeah, it's an arm bar. And yeah, one hand's at the wrist and one hand's at the elbow. And yeah, the arm is being used as a lever. And you might say something to him, but you know what? This is not Aikido. And maybe you make some derogatory comment against other arts and you go, that's just jujitsu. You're trying to draw a distinction. between what they're doing and what they're supposed to be doing. And we're all comfortable with that distinction because as moderns, we have a division of mind and body and, and no spirit in some cases. But for O-sensei, there was no division of mind and body and there was the presence of a spirit, spiritual aspect of the human being. And so something more subtle is looked for and is detected as present or as absent. And the technique of a person who has or who is enacting divine communion whether it be ikkyo or nikkyo or some technique that's still in daito-ryu but no longer in the core curriculum of Aikido, it's going to be done differently. And the person who is capable of this level of skill is going to be able to to tell the difference. So if I was going to point these self-transformation equations and these skill markers, so movement from A to non-A, non-A is greater than A, and also note and look for consistency, capacity, depth, and dispersion. 
I'm going to look at look at all of that from the experience and the enactment of divine communion. So let's bring this down because these are the apex markers of skill in Aikido. And as we mentioned before, there's going to be a whole lot of micro skills that they are based upon. Just as there was with mindfulness is related to marksmanship. And you would be then applying all of these equations and these growth aspects to each micro skill. So divine communion, what is it? It is the mystical experience. It is the reconciliation of ego attachment, attachment to self, to identity. and the natural process of a fulfillment that then takes place within us, for us, and around us. It is the experience that people have had in all likelihood since the evolution of human consciousness. It is the experience that even today people have for various reasons in various places, sought for and unsought for. Where the experience of self is dissolved and something else replaces it. But most of all, it is this experience. And this leads to a problem. Because experience, on the one hand, is the realm of the illiterate. Or on the other hand, the realm of the poet. What it is not is the realm of the academic.
And if you're listening to this and you're not working on this yourself or you're not in a sensei deshi relationship where you're actually practicing toward this end, all you're doing is listening, then you are adopting the position of the academic, which by its very nature is going to be an obstacle for your understanding or your acquiring of this. This is not as some scientific religiously devout atheists of our modern era might see as a cop-out. This is just an innate problem of experience. You can take any experience, even extremely mundane ones, and try to describe it to someone else who has not had the experience. And you'll see, you will fail at it. Let's just take the experience of the color red. And try to explain that experience to somebody who knows nothing of other colors or someone who's never seen any other color. And you will either adopt, adopt the illiterate's position, I can't explain it to you in words, or you will adopt the language of the poet. You might talk about heat and passion, love. But there are none of those things in the color red. However, they are in the experience of red. This, this probably more than O-sensei's specialized language of Omoto-kyo has had a bigger play in why those deshi that heard his talks had no idea what he was talking about. If you look at those deshi, those deshi were not really training with him. They were not engaged truly in the kind of apprenticeship or the kind of mentorship wherein one human who had the experience leads another into that experience. Doing a few classes here or there, even per week, even over years' time, is just not going to cut it. 
And if you compare that to others who had the experience, because O Sensei did have students who did have that experience, they never repeat the caveat you, you often hear from the aforementioned group that they didn't understand what he was talking about. They were able to understand the poetry of Omotokyo because they had the experience themselves. They knew because they felt the experience of red. Why the poet is talking about love and heat and passion. And it makes perfect sense to them, even though the color red has nothing in it of love and heat and passion. Budo, in a way, was primed for this transition that O Sensei made. Because Budo has had from its very formation as a Do, as an extended application of Buddhist and Taoist thinking of early Chinese thought, etc. That self-reconciliation, which is the reconciliation of self-attachment, was one of its goals. What those other systems did, however, was just focus in on the means at which that is achieved. In other words, and there is historical precedent for this, they were offering a prescription almost like a medicine for that that woes man. What was unique, but not not in the sense that he was the only one, but what was rare to O-sensei was that he went on and described what happens when you take the prescription or you take this medicine. Which these earlier systems just don't talk about. Not, not really. You get a few every, every once in a while that'll talk about it. I think they don't talk about it because of what I just said. There's always some inaccuracy innately built into describing something that cannot be described to someone 
who cannot understand the description. That, that's always a problem for a tradition that is trying to get people from A to non-A along these lines. Your descriptions are going to be misleading and it is almost human nature to now reify self-attachment by looking for these experiences. So you actually do them a disservice. These traditions that seek this self-reconciliation, they're built upon centuries of human experimentation with this technology of self. So they know not to do that. They've seen enough deshi make that mistake, so they don't do it. But O-sensei was not part of a school. He was his own tradition. He was his own person. He was that anchorite that left the world and sought this out on his own. And he cannot, because he did not capitalize upon the centuries upon centuries of refining a pedagogy. So he talked about what happens after. After you reconcile the self, this other experience of the world comes to you. And to use the discourse that was next to him at the time. So he talked about communion with God. That description there is as misleading and as partial and no less poetic just because it's being uttered by the person who has had the experience to themselves. We see this in history all the time. The, the problem of the shortcomings of words, the antithetical nature of language to the experience becomes no less a problem for the person having the experience. So they will describe it. It will make sense to them, but it's post hoc. It's a post hoc poetic expression of what their experience is. You see this caveat in some Buddhist sutras. There's one where the Buddha has all of his accomplished adepts and students and bodhisattvas, and he's asking them, what is the nature of reality? 
and each one following this kind of thinking gives a non-dualistic or an anti-dualistic answer. Which is what self-attachment is. It is a positing of oneself in contrast to the non-self. And using O Sensei's poem, poetic phrase, divine communion or communion with God is the wiping away of that, the experiencing of the world outside of that dichotomy of self and non-self. So in this sutra, they're at a table and they're all one by one talking about how reality is not this and not that, beyond this, beyond that. And it's going around and it goes for forever because they're making a point. And when you're listening to it, because you will tend to come as a reader from the self-non-self dichotomy, each answer sounds better than the last one. It's written that way. And it comes all the way around. As it goes around the table, it comes all the way around to one person. And he doesn't give that answer. He just holds up a flower and smiles. And the Buddha smiles back at him. And this is a caveat that is telling you that all of these poetic explanations are not only wrong because they are poetic for the listener who has not had the experience that these poetic expressions are wrong even for the person using it to describe their experience. So Budo, following that line of thinking, always had this notion of reconciling self and non-self. And Osensei just moved that over using his discourse and his poetics. And he came up with divine communion or communion with God. It's a different poem. but it's consistent with the ontology of Buddha. And also consistent is his need for capacity, that is the enactment of this reconciliation of self and non-self. And this is particular to his Budo and the Budo. Because other traditions that help you gain this experience or that problematize a worldly attached life 
and its use of the self-non-self dichotomy. They don't ask for capacity. They don't want to see if you can manifest a reconciliation of the self-non-self dichotomy under stress. There's enough stress. in their technologies. Whether it be through fasting or whether it be through marathon meditation or whether it be through ritual or the following of a monastic code, there's enough stress for them. Budo goes further and says, "Um, let's try it in a human versus human violence environment. This is very interesting because the only reason why you need a technology of self that assists people in reconciling the self-non-self dichotomy is because human beings have a capacity for utilizing the self-non-self dichotomy. It is as much a part of our body-mind or our body-mind-spirit of our being as is a reconciled self-non-self dichotomy. These two equations or these two energies these two sources of thought and action functions seamlessly within us. You can, by one or the other, achieve most of the same things. The difference being that a reconciled self-non-self dichotomy maintains a wellness and an unreconciled self-non-self dichotomy leads to insanity, to an unwellness. And this goes back to those historical precedents I mentioned earlier about how these technologies of self were really not religions and how we come to think of that word today, but religion in the sense that, hey, let me teach you a body-mind wisdom, a being wisdom that helps keep you well. So in testing out this capacity, when you take this type of training, this technology into the environment of human versus human violence, you trigger 
that other perfectly natural way of being. You trigger the self-non-self dichotomy to function at full capacity. And therefore, if you could reconcile that dichotomy within the environment of human versus human violence, then by default, your skill at experiencing divine communion is considered greater and more valid than if you could only manifest the experience outside of the toxic realm of violence amongst human beings. Let me say this again and using different words. As beings, as creatures, we have evolved and carry within us a need to avoid personal extinction. We share this with the rest of the natural world. Things carry within them an aim or a will or a purpose to live and to stay alive. The evolution of the fear consciousness is how this will is manifested in us. And that fear consciousness or that fear motivator or energy source is brought to levels so high within the human versus human violent encounter that it generates this aspect of our being, this dichotomy of self versus no self. It happens almost outside of our control. I would say it does happen outside of our control. It is just nature being nature. Someone comes to attack you, it'll trigger this ancient will. Stay alive. And because the source was fear, it goes right into this self-non-self dichotomy where you are contrasted with everything, including and especially so the attacker. At a reduced level, this is how most of us live. 
we live within this self, non-self dichotomy, and we face attackers all day long. We are in competition all day long. Some we win, some we lose. We are in a war zone, or we could at least call it that if it was not for the fact that it is the entirety of our life that is lived like this. And there's nothing zone about it. And like anybody who's living in an eternal war, you're going to be, be made unwell. From the cortisol dumps and the adrenaline dumps, toxic hormones released into your system, to the sleep deprivation, to the metabolic syndromes, to the self-medication techniques. to the subversion and the deconstruction of our social networks. We come to slowly be poisoned by life itself. This is something This capacity is something inside us and it has always been there, as I said, likely from the time that consciousness evolved into the consciousness of man. And so people have always experienced this toxicity, this self-poisoning, And so people have long worked on elixirs, so to speak. Other ways of experiencing the world that did not lead to this poisoning. These are your wellness systems. These are your religions. These are your mystical traditions. And they just go very reasonably to the source. Almost quite scientifically. They start at the end cause or the end effect. Look, you're being poisoned. Your sleep is wrong, your nutrition's wrong. Your body composition is wrong. Your mind is breaking. Your spirit is broken. You're not well. Here's why. 
you're living a life of war. Your daily experience of the world is an immersion into a toxic environment. Why? Because you live a life of conflict. You live a life where the self and the non-self are dichotomous. You are stuck in the tripartite of self-identity, fear, and suffering. The fear feeds the self-non-self dichotomy and the self-non-self dichotomy feeds the fear. And here's a medicine for you. It's the only one. We have to deconstruct the self-non-self dichotomy such that you experience the world not in conflict, not as a threat, so that you're not slowly poisoned over time. Not by something that is alien to your humanity, but something that is every bit a part of your humanity. And what Budo does is it goes, hey, let's amplify, let's magnify the toxic environment. Let's see if we can function with self, non-self reconciliation, not within a poetic, abstract version of the conflict model, but right in the middle of a real violent encounter. Because if I can do it there, then I can do it everywhere. I have depth and I have dispersion. So to bring this back down to the ground, great value that is put on Takamusu Aiki, the great value that is put on the enactment of divine communion, the enactment of the self-non-self reconciliation is because it's what tests for depth and dispersion and capacity.
It's why there is and should be a primacy to Jiwaza. Takamusaiki, the spontaneity of the enacting of the divine communion. It works like this. If I can reconcile self and non-self under Kihonwaza, that's good. That's one thing, though. That's consistency, but consistency under idealized training environments. Just like being able to put one round in the hole of the previous round when I'm the sole shooter on the firing line, then there is no stress of a timer. There's no added requirements such as movement. And nobody's shooting back at me. Manifesting the self, non-self reconciliation in Kihonwaza is just that. And it does not mean that you can do it outside of those idealized environments, which then posits the possibility for more capacity. Can you do it when you don't know what's coming in? Can you do it when the adversary is trying to subvert you at every turn? Or will you fail and will you return to a way of living of fear and the self-non-self dichotomy? So this is one way of measuring growth in Aikido. Can you manifest the physical valued attributes of the art within spontaneous environments? Or is it restricted only to Kihonwaza? And I can see now what I'm doing. I'm going to start with those ideals, the experience of divine communion and the enactment of divine communion, or the reconciliation of the self-non-self dichotomy and the manifestation of that reconciliation under spontaneous training environments. And we'll be moving down. These are our highest ideals in the art. So these are the highest aspects by which we can measure our movement from A to non-A. Are you headed this way? And these two aspects are going to have 
a lot of micro skills that we can also use to measure whether we're moving from A to non-A. And wherein non-A is greater than A. So for example, the person who does a technique, let's say ikkyo, and let's mark that as A, in a way based through the self-non-self dichotomy fear cycle. So you're going to see a manifestation of contestation, a psychology of fear and of victimhood. It'll show up, as I said, in an overemphasization on the elbow wrist fulcrum. It'll show up in shallow and staccato breathing. It'll show up in tense shoulders, an overutilization on the front and upper parts of the body. It'll show up in a loss of balance. As these things happen through contestation. So for example, the loss of balance comes because the stance is being challenged and the stance is being challenged because the practitioner is challenging the uke. The upper and front portions of the body are those areas at which stress is manifested. You have stress at work, someone comes to rub your shoulders, you're going to go, oh. Someone's going to tell you, hey, drop your shoulders, and you're going to see they can drop an inch or two even. The staccato breath involves the holding of breath. These are all fear responses. The raised shoulders, the tense shoulders, the holding of breath, these are all fear responses. And fear generates the self-non-self dichotomy. This makes uke something to overpower or to avoid. You are in a contrasting, conflicting relationship with uke. You are at this point seeing a microcosm of the way this person experiences all of life. But it is being magnified, amplified. And so we can see this conflict model and this self-non-self dichotomy at work. We can see the manifestations of fear at work. where most of the times in their daily life it goes unnoticed, it goes as, as part of being normal when it's not. It is a disease state.
So this person does the technique that way and even has a, an experience of the technique that way. So they're doing ikkyo and it carries with it the desire to pin the uke. The desire to do the technique, the desire to not have the technique fail, the desire to not lose to the uke. And all this is part of that fear. Self-non-self dichotomy. So that's A. And let's say the person, through years of practice, through being mentored in this technology of self, to being guided and assisted through the taking of this prescription of wellness, comes to be able to do another version of Ikkyo, not having those attributes or having them manifested so small that it is no longer identical to their first ikkyo. And here you have a movement from A to non-A. And this non-A is greater than A. So you have the structures of training being manifested and you have a sense of growth. And it is one that is consistent with what the founder posited, which makes sense. It is a sense of growth. It may be traditional, but it's not traditionalistic. Now what you'll find is this person can do quite a few techniques like this within Kihonwaza. And really what you're seeing is just the lens for the self-non-self dichotomy being observed is not at high enough a power. It is an improvement, but it does not mean that the same toxic aspects are no longer working. In fact, they probably are. This is always one of the downsides of form. That one comes to be trapped in form because form traps. This is the point trying to be captured in Shuhari. The beginner practitioner needs form and needs this lens to see the problem. But the form itself becomes part of the problem. Because the form 
is always a form that is contrasted against another form. And so form is always a mechanism of division. And division is antithetical to communion. Division is an affect of the self-non-self dichotomy. And this is why O-sensei and Budoka and people that study the Do arts become so interested in moving past form. And in classic East Asian thought, become interested very much like those bodhisattva and adepts at the Buddha's table were interested in non-duality, in the reconciliation of form and non-form, which is the marker of the reconciliation of self and non-self. So spontaneity outside of controlled and prescribed environments is key. And anyone that can manifest that kind of non-A has a greater value to it is going to have consistency, capacity, depth, and dispersion. So let's say you are one of those practitioners and you're trying to bring to this reconciliation into a spontaneous environment here's where we have a problem well you have problems throughout this don't you but that's the training you move from problem to problem Problems are not antithetical to the way. Problems mark the way. And again, in my this is my experience. What I have seen in Jiyuwaza is no Jiyuwaza. The Jiwaza training environment remains as controlled as the Kihonwaza training environment. Therefore, the lens into our self-non-self reconciliation is made no more powerful than in Kihonwaza, and so we can't truly see. Of course, somebody who has experienced self-non-self reconciliation can tell. But for most of us, we're kind of just playing at it. We're kind of, we're, we're like kids that are acting like our parents without understanding what our parents are doing. 
So we're in some sort of jiwazem. We pick like, uh, you know, there's, it's usually two techniques. The attack is prescribed. Ryo katadori, and you do kokunage, or you do a palm heel to their face, and you do it over and over and over. This should be suspect because of the artificiality of repetition, the lack of variation. is telling you that you're not in a spontaneous training environment, that you are again in a, and remain so in a controlled environment. But let's say you get past that. What I've seen practitioners realize, not only is there this underlying self-non-self dichotomy that is going unreconciled, which leads us to not do Aiki, which leads us to live a life of conflict, victimization, fear, and suffering. But you realize that there is a very practical aspect to Takamusa Aiki which should have made sense from the beginning, but us moderns always separate the body, mind, and spirit. And like I said, for some of us, there's no spirit. And so we could not fathom that there might be as equally a concrete, practical side to what apparently at first looked like it was merely a mindset or a psychology. But what I've seen over the decades is that when someone gets themselves into a truly spontaneous environment, the architecture, the geometry of the vectors that are being used were the ge was the geometry and the vectors associated with the fear self-non-self engine. So if you see, if you have the fear, self, non-self dichotomy functioning within you, you actually adopt equal versions wherein that is working. So you have angles that are really just manifestations of conflict and contestation. Let's just stick with that. And that angle would, would have been exposed, but it was manifested within a controlled environment, so it's not exposed. It goes unquestioned. It does not have any sort of transformative process. So let's stick with Ikkyo again and let's take the, uh, let's do Aihami Kosadori or Aihami Katatadori.
and we do the wrist grab. And let's just focus in at the angle at the elbow. It's not uncommon to see people push the elbow. So the uke is coming in from 12 to 6. 12 is the direction you're facing as nage. And what you end up doing is you push the elbow at contact back towards 12 o'clock. Well, this is a contestation. This is an opposing force. This is fear. This is the self-non-self dichotomy functioning. And so if you're strong enough, you do it. It works. Your strength is, ever, is, is ready and capable of overcoming the resistance brought about by the mass and the inertia of the uke. You might not feel it to be a conflict, but meaning you it might have taken such little strength that you don't consider it being part of this fear-self-non-self dichotomy. But in terms of yin and yang theory, it definitely is. It's yang against yang. That's a conflict. If you are a smaller person, or a child, or a female in a dojo made up mostly of men, you're going to have this experience a lot. And usually what people do is they just try to get stronger. But it's still young against young. It's still a conflict. It's still not Aiki. It's still not Aikido. It's still fear, self, non-self working. But you'll still have those reps where it doesn't function and the, the uke kind of overpowers you, pushes your whole body back towards 6 o'clock. Or you develop strategies of waiting for them to settle. Or even worse, you develop a kihon training environment where the uke no longer comes in but like a dressage pony at the flip of the wrist knows to already start heading the other way. taking from you the opportunity to reconcile the yang to yang conflict. Solving it for you artificially. Well, what happens when those people, that skill level, that practitioner at that point in their training gets into a takamusi Aiki environment or a jiwaza, some sort of live training environment, what usually happens is at, let's just start at the end here, the uke doesn't know what technique you're going to do. And so they can't dressage their way into reconciling the yin and yang conflicts for you. It's now left to you. Because the end Result is not chosen beforehand because the technique is not prescribed. The dressage uke is at a loss.
And now the skill of reconciling yin and yang, which is only possible by the fear self, non-self dichotomy being reconciled. That all exposes this one vector at the elbow, which is totally incorrect. And now our growth equations can come a little bit more down to earth. Because we can just look at, well, that vector on the elbow doesn't work. It only works if I'm able to have my yang out yang that elbow. And here we, st we start to get to the physical attributes of the art. Of course, they themselves, as was already said, are based in the spiritual or being level aspects of the art. These are the micro-skills. So I would say that Aikido at a physical level noting that this is not a purely physical thing Should have tactical architectures, waza. That solve the force equations or the force problems by two means. The first one is you make yourself as mechanically efficient as possible. This is a skill. And the second one, another skill, that you make your opponent as mechanically inefficient as possible. Now again, in my experience through the decades, what I have seen is that everyone believes they're doing this, including the person who is going yang against yang at the elbow in Ikkyo. So let me give you a guiding light. I already used it. It's the concept of yin and yang. And to at first see them at pairing. So obviously yin and yang is a dichotomous worldview. And so obviously at the end we're not doing this. But at the beginning, as if, just as if we start with form, which is a technology of the self-non-self -self dichotomy, we will start with a dichotomy of yin and yang. And then the end we will move past it. So a very good beginner tool is to again look to O-sensei 
And to have Yang go with Yin and Yin go with Yang. We don't want Yang with Yang, such as the elbow pushing, the, the hand, the elbow hand pushing back on the elbow in Ikkyo. And we don't want Yin going with Yin. Some common examples of yang going with yang. Some that are really totally accepted. Much of Idiminage, both the Kazushi for Idiminage, the Idimi Tenkan version, the way people pull on the collar. That's is, this is yang against yang. The block people use on Yoko Minuchi, that's yang against yang. You'll have practitioners whose dispositions, whose own personal history has their fear, self, non-self system working in a way that they're... they're Conflict model is always yang against yang. It's quite common. But you also have those deshi whose personal history has them always going yin. Yin against yin. Yin against yin. It happens. So I'm going to look at my techniques. If I'm going to ask, am I growing, am I improving, you can do this. You can look at your techniques and see where am I going yang against yang or yin against yin. Where, where am I not going and harmonizing yin and yang. Now you take depth, dispersion, and you realize, as you will, that a harmonization of yin and yang that happens externally is very much a part, maybe perhaps even preceded by an internal recon reconciliation of yin and yang. And you can go deeper and you can see that when I go yang against yang, for example, you're going to see that the self-non-self -self dichotomy is functioning. And so to not go yang against yang, you're going to have to reconcile the self-non-self -self dichotomy in that instant. And now you're back to the larger Russian dolls. This is just that principle of concentric truth. In order to not push on that elbow, I'm going to have to detach from the self. That is, reconcile the self, non-self. 
that is step out of this conflict worldview. And when I do that, the God principle enters and takes over. So this is a very, very important metric. And it goes to this Confucian pedagogy that is so seeped, that Buddhism is so seeped in that nobody even talks about it anymore. It's all just taken for granted. And that is the utilization of as-if ritual. So you take Kihon... And it is a prescribed pattern that in its architecture is about a reconciliation of yin and yang. And you take on this ritual and you immerse yourself in the ritual where you start to embody this reconciliation. You are by default reconciling the ultimate yin and yang manifestations, self and non-self. So look at your techniques from yin and yang. Even use the founder's tactical prescription. So, when pushed, when yang, when facing yang, turn. Tenkan. Reconcile. Do not contest. When pulled, idimi, enter. Do not pull back. Much of setups today in judo and other grappling arts make use of the fact that most people are training with this self-non-self dichotomy and that sets them up. So I push you, you're going to push back on me. I'm triggering you. I push, you go, I push with yang, you push back with yang. I pull, you're going to pull back on me. And now I can set you up. Because you are reactive. I can predict what you're going to do. I am manipulating you. But when you're free of the self-non-self dichotomy, you're pulled, you will enter. The pulling is not a threat. It is an opportunity. And the pushing is not a threat. It is an opportunity. 
Now go deeper. Let's go into depth. Because this yin and yang has to happen internally. Physically. Not just psychologically. So the making of yourself as mechanically efficient as possible is going to be about mass unification. This will, of course, involve things like directional harmony and grounding, low center of gravity, even fitness. But ultimately, you'll see that the biggest contributor is organization. Meaning, I want to have my mass organized in a way that an overwhelming majority of it is present at the desired point of delivery. This is where you get all those kokyuryoku practices and skill developments, demonstrations. It's also where you get demonstrations wherein a practitioner uses a minority or what appears to be a minority of their mass and yet still yields the desired result. These are all demonstrations in power, all demonstrations in systematic organization. This will allow you, for example, if you wanted to, you could be so capable of, of this that were you to take the elbow in Ikkyo back towards 12 o'clock, you'd have still a kind of yin and yang reconciliation because yin and yang are relative terms. So you would be so powerful in your kokyu, for example, that their oncoming arm moving from 12 to 6 remains in comparison a yin arm. Now, internally, as you try to make your opponent or your ukye as mechanically inefficient as possible, this is aiki. Of course, externally, you're doing this through things like Kazushi, but that is not all of it. And in fact, Kazushi, outside of Aiki, is not Aikido. Aiki is not balanced tricks. Although you can use Aiki to generate a loss of balance.
some of the biggest markers in Aiki are an adhesion that takes place. The uke gets stuck to your contact points. And not only when they're using that contact point to maintain their balance, which is definitely part of it, but they can be upright and they can get stuck on you. In demonstrations, you can prolong this, but in applications, you don't need it prolonged. Just microseconds are enough. So you can look, is there an adhesion present? Is the person stuck on me? Of course, this can be artificially created just as in the same way as the uke who starts turning around towards 12 o'clock can reconcile the yang-yang potential conflict at the elbow in ikkyo. You will have these uke who will just start running around nage for no reason. So tell your uke not to run around you. So now if you have kokyu and aiki, if you have these increase in efficiencies, and you go back into your jiwaza, you're going to be much more capable of reconciling the self-non-self dichotomy. Not only because of the power that comes from being on the positive side of all these force equations, but because in your training to develop these micro skill sets, you were reconciling the self-non-self dichotomy. And that's what's most important. Another way of understanding this, I'm sure every adult Aikidoka has at some point done Aikido Kihon Waza on a child. Maybe your own child. Or maybe you help with student class with the kids' classes. And you'll notice that these that the children don't know your dressage, you kemi, yet you're able to still do the technique. You're able to do the technique because you're able to solve these force equations. Well, Developing Kokyu and Aiki is going to give you the capacity to solve the necessary or the related force equations on adults 
in GUASA training environments. Until then, it is very difficult to do. And you go into GUASA, a true GUASA training environment, and all you are experiencing is a triggering of the self-non-self dichotomy. You're experiencing fear. You're being attacked. You're living out your toxic daily life. So I think that this is a very easy way to to check whether we are improving, whether we're moving to non-A and whether non-A is truly greater than A. And I think this is how Aikido training remains a Budo, remains in alignment with the founder. Remains a system of wellness. Remains an asceticism. Remains an elixir. For the toxicity of life. remains a system that addresses our equal potential to live in an unwell manner. I don't know what part of our art cannot or should not be looked at through these ultimate aims. They touch everything. They touch every part of our world and every part of our being. And all that is left are those personal commitments to not cave to our fear, to do what it takes to become who we can and should be, to not wait but to risk it now 
to address what ails us now, to take responsibility for it now. to live our life this way, starting now. To practice means this. To improve means this. Not necessarily to achieve these things, but to struggle with these things. To put every day and every moment through these filters, through these lenses. To walk the earth like this. To aim to becoming a being free of fear and free of conflict. And to touch people. And to feel people. no longer as other. And then to one day return to the void from where we all came. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.